So it's on, and I'm wasting time, right? Okay. How much time on there you could talk today? Oh, that was dangerous. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's really nice to be here, and I thank you for the goodies upstairs and the wonderful bag and um, just um, for letting me be an interloper on your very intimate affair, annual affair. I know this is a special time of year for you, and I really appreciate that you would invite me. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what it's like for me in the hours before I speak at a retreat, which happens now and then that I speak at a retreat. Um, I think... What have I done? This, <laughs> this is all a big mistake. I'm a fraud. You know, um, I have nothing to say. You know, um, somewhere along the line, I, I must have been presumptuous to say yes to this thing. You know, um, and I freak out because I meet people who have lived better lives than me, are better than me, and I should be sitting there and all this stuff. You know. Satan is reminding me of and for the most part it's true stuff and so then um, what I have to do is I just have to say well look um, God knows all this stuff and somehow or other he's placed you here and it's really too late to go home now <laughs> so, so I gave you a little something to say and just say it. That's all. I mean, um, and yesterday when I was talking to Tanya, we were both nervous about talking today, and she has to give her testimony this evening. And then she said, you know what? We should just be thankful that we have the opportunity to tell people something that God did in our life. And so this morning I thought of that, and I started thanking God that I have this chance to tell you guys the things that he's told me, and um, it made all the difference once I started thanking him. I felt a whole lot better, um, and I'm sharing that little non-incident with you just because it's, it's a kind of a sampler of what I'm going to be talking about, abiding in Christ, this sort of nitty-gritty um, thing that goes on out of sight of everyone else, just privately between you and the Lord. This uh, talking back to yourself or talking back to Satan, it's what Jesus did he did it out loud even, and I have to do it out loud oftentimes. You know, in, in Luke 3, we read about him being tempted, and he just responded to all the temptations, all, every fiery dart, with Scripture. Um, so, you have to get muscular with your faith and with your talking. Now, here's the more encouraging thing about doing retreats, if you ever have to do one. I... Um, remember from Acts 20 verse 20 when Paul was saying goodbye to the people at Ephesus he said you know very well that I didn't hesitate to tell you anything everything that was helpful and I just seized on that word helpful and I thought wow that's a really good thing to keep in mind that's a very modest calling you know you don't have to be Pulitzer Prize you just have to be helpful you know uh, 
So anybody can do that, right? <clears throat> Even if you're, um, you know, nobody's, nobody's useless. You can always be a bad example, at least. You know, you can, <laughs> you, can, you can share your faults and tell people what you learned from them, things like that. So I started thinking when I was asked to, to share here, what would be helpful? And there are lots of different retreat topics that one might uh, speak on that are helpful. You can talk about evangelism. You can talk about education. You can talk about finances. So, but I was thinking that for me, the most helpful thing lately has been to just get down to the abiding with Christ level, you know. Um, and I want to... Um, I want to say that what I mean, what I'm going to mean by abiding in Christ is not being a Christian. I don't take those words as synonymous, okay? Um, I think it's, and I, the reason is because I know from my own life that it's possible to be a Christian and not to be abiding in Christ. Um, for many, many years, I had a secret garden in my soul. I mean, I was a Christian, at least I had professed the faith, but um, I was, um, I had a secret garden of negative, evil thoughts that I was watering and fertilizing, and nobody knew it, and it went on for many, many years, and I thought that it wasn't really a big deal, as long as outwardly I was performing my duties, you know, um, and I feel like Satan has robbed me of a lot on account of that, and I'm still, those chickens are still coming home to roost, you know. Um, so, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we hear that there are Christians who, when they go to meet the Lord, will be saved, but sort of by the skin of their teeth. I mean, they will, there will be some who will receive a reward for really abiding in Christ on a moment-by-moment basis and, and yielding to his spirit. And then some of us will get a little bit of a, you know, uh, a rebuke before we enter into joy. I don't know how God's going to sort all that out, but, um, you know, the rock, hay, and stubble type thing versus the gold. So we are in Christ, safe in him, but now he wants to show us the pathways of grace in which to walk in order to abide and to bring us into a deeper thing. And I think we all want everything he means us to have in this already part. You know, we talk about the already and the not yet, and I think sometimes we put way too much in the not yet basket that's meant to be in the already basket. Okay. Um, so abiding is being close to God. And, you know... I think it's uh, a good analogy would be the father-child relationship. We all have fathers, right? But um, or had fathers, but not all of us are very close with our fathers. You know? And we've had lovers, but I know husbands and wives who aren't particularly close to each other either. You know, uh, Jesus wants to be our lover. God wants to be a father to us, but we can keep him at arm's length. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our fixer-upper of a heart, but we can keep him at arm's length too. Okay, So when I'm going to talk about abiding, it's going to be something a little richer and warmer than just you know, um, being in the church. 
And I want to give you a little taste. I brought a couple letters. I, one of my things I do is I write to a few inmates over the years. And this all developed because I write for a magazine. And there are inmates who have a lot of time on their hands and who are brought to the Lord in their distress. God leads his people out into the desert sometimes and, and teaches them there. And, so, and they have access to world magazines. So uh, here's one from a guy named Nathan. Dear Sister Andre, this is to give you a taste of just abiding and some kind of joy that God wants us to have. Seasons, greetings, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Thank you so much for answering my letter so quickly. I hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas together. I thought I would send you one of my stories with this letter, but then the Lord put it on my heart to share this wonderful event with you instead, and I couldn't be happier to do so. So here goes. The other night I came in and was getting ready for bed, and my celly was in his bed with his headphones on and couldn't hear a thing I said, or just barely could, because when I said goodnight to him, he removed one side of his headset, headset and asked me what I said. I repeated the goodnight and climbed into my bunk. I went into prayer, and I asked the Lord if he could, if he would, let me know sometime that he loves me, like he does Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis. I had no sooner made my request than my roommate said these words, you don't know what it's like, you don't know what it's like to love somebody, to love somebody the way I love you. Anybody here old enough to know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Yeah, this thing in the Motown song. I thanked the Lord for his mercy and grace as the tears streamed from my eyes, telling him how much I love him too. After I recovered my composure, I looked down at my celly and motioned for him to remove his headphones. He did as I requested, and I asked him if he knew what he had just said. He didn't remember, I suppose because he was simply singing along with the tunes on his radio. So I repeated the words he said, and then I told him what I had asked from the Lord and how the Lord had used him to answer my petition. It's as if the Lord had orchestrated the entire event to take place, being this, my petition, the song, and my roommate voicing only those words of the song just as I finished my petition to the Lord. The Lord's timing is perfect in all things. Perhaps this letter to you is just what you needed to hear too. Anyway, I continued to tell my roommate how he was unsuspectedly used by the Lord for my comfort, and that the Lord is in control of our lives, at least of those who seek him and fear him. How comforting it is to know that he hears our prayers and does indeed love us all. Jesus loves you too, Andres, to have a Merry Christmas. And right soon, your brother in Christ, Nathan. By the way, I have permission to read these. So. One other short one. This is from a different prison. That was, uh, this one's from Texas. Texarkana has a significant but slowly dwindling Hispanic population. Busload by busload, Departees are being transferred to INS detention centers, prisons with scaled-down amenities and services. In order to avoid trouble, the BOP, Bureau of Prisons, has taken to middle-of-the-night extractions. A person scheduled for transfer is awakened as soon as midnight count clears. They have no forewarning and are only given about 30 minutes to pack. He can't even tell his friends goodbye. The result of this process is an undercurrent of dread among those who are affected. They literally don't know what prison they might be, they might wind up in tomorrow. The Hispanic Christians have a very strong faith, and I have felt a bond with many of them. There is an intensity to their prayer and worship that makes me envious. 
After each midnight sortie, we anxiously survey the damage. Who has gone? How has the move affected their families? What holes does that, does that leave here? <coughs> These godly men have taught me a lot. I see their faith and commitment to spiritual growth, and it inspires me to strive for more in my own walk with the Lord. If the worship team loses a guitarist or a drummer, they simply trust the Lord to raise up another one. There's something really special about their worship, too. Many of our worship songs are what I call me songs. <clears throat> they, speak, they speak of our faith, but the emphasis is on me. Um, but these songs that they sing lift up and magnify the Lord. Here is one. Solo tu eres santo, you alone are holy. Solo tu eres digno, you alone are worthy. Tu eres hermoso y maravilloso, you are beautiful and marvelous. When I sing these songs, I get caught up in the spirit. The cares and ugliness of this place melt away. The stupid things that happen no longer bug me. The nastiness of the God ceases its sting. All that matters is that he's on the throne, and I can declare to him, to him his holiness and worthiness and beauty. I know that the same God who draws me to his throne boards the bus with each Hispanic brother. They may be bound with leg shackles, cuffs, and belly chains, but in the spirit they are free. Their faith will sustain them in their new home. God's feet admon us. We will meet again in a better place. Andy. So, um, so we want to talk about a deeper, fuller relationship with Christ and coming into everything that he has for us and into joy. And I'd like to read, if anyone has a Bible with them, um, John... 14, verse 21, which are specific references to abiding. Um, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What are the things promised in this verse? Anybody want to just shout out something promised here? Right. We'll be loved by my Father. And what else? His presence. Oh, I might have a different version than you, too. His love, his presence. Yeah, he who loves... It is he who... Loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That God wants to show himself to us. Um, chapter 15, verses 7, 9, and 10. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. <coughs> As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What are the conditions in both of those verses for abiding in Christ? What does the text say? Yeah. Keep his commandments. Um... In both places, he says, keep my, keep, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
the words are sharp and clear here. There's no guesswork about this. We are saved by the blood of Christ, not by our own work. But if we want to have a deep abiding with him, there's something here about keeping his word. And what I want to say about that is that it's not a keeping his word in general or in the abstract, but in the moment by moment of your life. Um, and there's no conflict here about how, how you're saved, uh, about whether it's by works or by grace. Because to talk about keeping God's commandments is just another way of saying that we're inviting Christ or submitting to, to be uh, to have Christ not only as Savior but as Master, and we follow Him as Master. And so the grace of salvation is not only the grace for forgiveness of sins, but the grace to follow a Master. First John, <coughs> chapter one, verse three and four has a different way of speaking about abiding uses a different word here that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ I think the Old Testament people would have been quite shocked to hear the word fellowship used in terms of Christ but this is what we're being offered here this is what the abiding is And John claims in the next verse, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. How many Christians have fullness of joy? And yet this is what's promised. So either we have to water down what the Bible says about joy and take it to mean something abstract or mystical but not really practical and livable, or else we have to acknowledge maybe that there's a gap between our theology and our reality and to figure out how to bridge that gap and what God says about that. God knows where each of us is. Some of us have lived in less than what he promised for so long that we think it's normal. You know? But God has invited us to abide with him. <clears throat> and, you know, we might think this is way too hard and we don't have the strength for it. But... God knew all that about us when he gave the command to abide in him. So he's going to deliver. He's going to give us what we need to abide in him. I like Google Maps. Do you guys ever use it? There's that little man that goes up and down. Uh, You can make him go up to like a 50,000 feet elevation, or you can make him go down to street level. I live in Glenside at 403 Paxton Avenue, so I checked out Google Maps. And I could see Glenside from the perspective of the moon, I guess, you know. And then I got down closer, and the closer I got, it was really fun. I could see my neighbor, Juanita, walking down the street right in front of my house and the curtains, okay, of the house. And there's something pretty freaky about that. But, (laughs) you know, something really disturbing and... Well, that's the whole of the subject, the way the direction the country is going. But at the same time, it's a good illustration for abiding. God knows us at the street and curtain and Juanita level of life. And so that's what I want to talk about this weekend is that particular level. And, you know, we um, it's amazing how many people don't really know themselves at that level. I saw a video the other day. Some guy was interviewing people on the street, a Jewish Christian. He was um, 
asking them what they thought about whether they would go to heaven. And these were all typical, I guess, average American 20-somethings. And, and he said, well, do you think you're a good person? Yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't see any reason why God wouldn't let me into heaven. And I thought, wow, you know, that's such a different view than I've had of myself. You know, what kind of state of mind do you have to live in to not have noticed that even before breakfast you, you thought some very terrible things. Just driving home from the supermarket, how many people did you slay or judge in your mind? How can you be so clueless about that, you know? So this is the abiding level this, that we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> there is a tendency for the Christian life to degenerate into programs. Um, and programs, the thing about programs is that they can pretty much run by themselves once they're set up. Even if you've lost all sense of reality with Christ. Uh, there are probably churches that, um, that if the Holy Spirit packed up and walked out, no one would see the difference because the programs are in place. And that's a pretty scary thought. And we know that it can happen because Jesus said in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, he warned them, you know, you've got to clean this up in your church because if you don't, the lampstand that, that, that stands for your church is going to be snuffed out. And you may still call yourself a church, but not in my book. Yeah. Um, there was a, a woman, um, an author of an important book uh, on the Christian life, and I loved her book. It was fantastic. But I went to a house party for her. And uh, she wanted to discuss ways to turn her insight. She had this wonderful insight. She wants to turn it into a curriculum in a college. And a professor uh, that I think very highly of and has a lot of wisdom very gingerly, tenderly suggested to her that maybe it's, um, it's a danger in the church that we want to jump to turn every insight into a program right away. Yeah. Um, Dr. Davis, he was my history professor at the seminary, and I asked him one time off the record, I said, how would you describe the history of the church in the last 2,000 years in one sentence? And he thought about it, and he said, there is a tendency to lose Christ. Yeah. I mean, things start off with a bang, there's a revival, there's a repentance, and before you know it, somebody turns it into a program. Somebody stops reading the Bible, somebody stops praying. I went to a major uh, Christian ministry one time. I won't even tell you where it is, because if I tell you even the state, you'll guess what, which one it is, maybe. And the man who runs a good part of it gave me a tour of the facility. And somehow or other, we talked about prayer. And he said to me, quite uh, casually, that he doesn't really have the time to pray that he used to because he's very busy managing the thing. And, you know, I thought, wow, that's really dangerous. That happens to, to me and everybody, you know, and, uh, and we can't do that, you know, because that's where our power is, prayer. You know? I went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the, uh, our capital, and a U.S. representative gave me and my friend a tour there. We passed by a little room, and he said, oh, that's the prayer room. Um, he said, where, you know, I go with other representatives who are, of the congressmen who are Christians, and we pray. 
we do that on Wednesdays or Tuesdays. And I said, oh, really? You know, and I asked him about what he's prayed about lately or something. And he said, well, we sort of got out of the habit because we, you know, we got busy. And that's what happens. You know, we just get too busy for the Lord. But the Lord looks at the heart. Um, Psalm 33, verse 14. says, From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually and considers all their works. I was just looking at a place in scripture, for a place in scripture that would show God's attention to that very intimate level of activity, you know. He doesn't look so much at the programs as at the heart. Um... There's a guy named Michael Behe. He's from my state. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And um, I don't know if he's a Christian. He might be. I think he's a Catholic. And you can be a Christian if you're a Catholic. And, um, but he made the point that um, he's an anti-evolutionist because uh, he says they can't ever explain um irreducible complexity of things. You know, like you find a watch on the beach, it's already made, it can't have come together, you know. Anyway, but that's not the point. He said that before the 1950s, all we had to go on was gross anatomy, you know, uh, in trying to figure out how species got to be the way they were. So you'd look at an arm or a leg and a wing and you would see the similarity and you could guess that maybe one evolved from the other. But he said... You can't do that anymore. Ever since the 50s, when microbiology came in, um, it changed the whole ballgame. Uh, now, where the real action is, is the cellular level. And it's all about cells um, and what goes on there. You know, so you pretty much forget about just looking at the growth anatomy. He writes, the real work of life does not happen at the level of the whole animal or the organ. The most important parts of living things are too small to be seen. Life is lived in the details, and it's the molecules that handles life's details. Uh, after 1950, science advanced to the point where it could determine the shapes and priorities of a few of the molecules that made up living organisms. Slowly, painstakingly, the structures of more and more biological molecules were elucidated, and the way they work inferred from countless experiments. The cumulative results show with piercing clarity that life is based on machines, machines made of molecules. And look at this picture. Molecular machines haul cargo from one place in the cell to another along highways made of other molecules, while still other molecules act as cables, ropes, and pulleys to hold the cell in shape. Machine turns cellular... Machines turn cellular switches on and off, sometimes killing the cell or causing it to grow. Um, it's very interesting that he took us behind the curtain to something that no one ever saw before, what goes on at this minute dev uh, level of cells. And in a similar way, that's what we should be looking at uh, in terms of our heart and our relationship with Christ. I have a friend who worked in, uh, for many, many years in a, uh, an organization that was uh, pro-life and did other kind of urban ministry. And uh, it's interesting to me that the things that kept her awake at night and were not 
things about uh, pro-life, but about the office power plays that were going on. And uh, which is another way of saying that, you know, our programs are up here on one level and they're good programs. But we got to tend to the office power plays too, because that's what keeps you up at 2 in the morning. Francis Schaeffer, some of you might know, wrote a book called True Spirituality. And I read it as my first book as a Christian, one of the first, the second book probably. And I thought, wow, he's going to show me what true spirituality is. And I was looking for something very kind of mystical and maybe arcane and hard to understand. And you know what he said? He said the true test of your spirituality, litmus test, is are you coveting? That's all. Whoa. Yeah, of all the things you could pick up, he could have said love, he could have said any number of things, but he said, are you coveting? And then he said, nobody wants to admit it, but we've all been guilty of that and of even being glad for bad things that happen to other people that we're supposed to like. Um, you know, the Germans have a word for it, Schadenfreude, right? And I... It's a wonderful word, and it means taking pleasure in other people's misfortune. Um, I had a friend who, in 1986, was in a major car accident, and um, it actually changed her life for the better, though this is a tangent here. She was having an affair with someone at the time, and that just stopped her right in her tracks. She ended up in the hospital. I mean, she's walking the the, the marriage was repaired, and she and her husband are missionaries, and everything was good. But she ended up in the hospital. She was a gorgeous woman, and still very pretty. Uh, but she told me that she noticed when some people saw her kind of disfigured in the hospital, some people seemed to be actually kind of glad that she wasn't as beautiful anymore. You know, I have a niece who's like that. She's so gorgeous that it was hard for her to have female friends. So... First um, John talks about in First John six talks about abiding in terms of practicing the truth. So knowing the truth is one thing, but we're talking about a moment by moment walking in the truth. In verse seven of the same chapter, he talks about walking in the light. In chapter two, verse twenty nine, and three verses seven and ten talks about practicing righteousness. There's a lot of practicing, active, present, continuous stuff going on here. Do you guys ever see this? I'm sure most of you have seen this kind of thing. I drew this before I came, but not before I came. Now, what do you see when you look at this? I wonder what most people see first. Are you... What, what is, do I have it upside down? Oh. You see the white? Okay, well, what is the white? Oh, okay. Okay, do you see, does anybody see something else after a couple minutes? Yeah, two faces. Well, I was trying to think of a way to explain you a paradigm shift that I've experienced in reading the Bible. At a certain point, not too long ago, it dawned on me that every time the Bible talks about faith, 
It's not talking about something like your voter registration card that you whip out. Yeah, I got faith. Yeah, 1983, I made a profession. I got faith. Here, you want to see proof? I got faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a member of the church for crying out loud. I got faith, okay? <laughs> Leave me alone. I got faith. But, but when the Bible talks about faith, it's talking always about believing God, you know? And so... Every, you know, I go through the Bible now, and I'm very conscious of it, and it changed the way everything looked. It changed it from the, the vase to the ladies, or the ladies to the, to the vase. You know, when I look at the word faith now, I don't see it anymore as something abstract and like a state of um, a status, like your status is unbeliever or your status is believer. I look at it as something that's either I'm doing right now this minute or I'm not doing this minute. That's all there is. There is no other kind of faith but the believing God this second. Um, I want to show you one verse just as an example of one that I slipped in my mind. First Peter 1 verse 5. says, You are kept by the power of God through faith salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and I had to write in the margins in some places where it says through faith I put through believing God this minute okay how are we kept um, for salvation we're kept by the power of God but through what through believing him so we're not kept by the power of God as we don't believe him but we're kept by the power of God as we're believing him as you're walking through the day not believing him, if you're not believing him, you better, you know, fear. But if you're walking through the day believing him, and I'm not saying you have to have it all figured out, but just trusting him even in, in not having it all figured out, that's when you're under, you know, a hedge of protection, is as you're walking, you're kept by the power of God through believing him. And it would be kind of a neat homework assignment if you go through scripture and every place where you see the word faith, just write present continuous tense, you know, or believe in God. We could check this out right now. <clears throat> you want to check right now if you're believing God? There's a test we can do right now. As you're sitting there, try to see if you're feeling just a mild undercurrent of anxiety about something. Maybe you're so used to it that it's normal, normal state of being for you to be slightly anxious all the time, sort of like a pebble in the shoe, you know, that we've gotten so used to it that we never bother to stop and check it out and sort of, you know, make a correction there and deal with it before the Lord, which we can all do just sitting here privately, you know. Um, <clears throat> Andrew Murray said, you know, that you should pay attention to those feelings, the sort of red flag emotions that the Lord has given you for you to, to get back some reality to your faith. You know, just stop and ask yourself right now what it is that I'm feeling anxious about. Because when we're feeling a little bit anxious, maybe we've moved slightly from our place of abiding and we need to get back to our place of abiding. And the only way I know how to do it, honestly, because... I've got so much, so many voices in my head all the time is, is to almost whisper it under my breath and almost say it out loud. Okay, the Lord does love me. I'm okay. You know, and wh whatever it is that I'm worried about, the Lord has got this. You know, he's got it. Um, Eckhart Tolle, he's not a believer. He wrote a book called The Power of Now. 
And he said, and this is an insight of someone who doesn't even know Christ, but he's noticed something about himself and other people. I'm going to quote to you. <clears throat> he said that most people, as a, matter of fact, as a matter of fact, never live in the now. Most people spend their whole lifetime willingly trapped in incessant mental noise. Enslavement to incessant thinking. He says, it's almost as if you were possessed without knowing it. Virtually everyone hears a voice or several voices in their head all the time. He said, I would say that about 80 to 90% of most people's thinking is not only repetitive and useless, but because of its dysfunctional and often negative nature, much of it is also harmful. This is not abiding in Christ. I mean, to go a whole day of just this kind of negative thinking that we don't bother to come against in faith is not a state of abiding. I mean, you'll be saved, but what a miserable life on the way, you know. Um, Anne Labatt, I read this because she's a writer, and she wrote a wonderful book on writing. And she writes about the same things from a different perspective. She's talking to people who want to uh, write things, but, um, but who perhaps um, have a, some kind of writer's block. And she says, if you are not careful, station, I won't name the station, will play in your head 24 hours a day, nonstop, in stereo. Out of the right speaker in your inner ear will come the endless stream of self-aggrandizement and the recitation of one's specialness of how much more open and gifted and brilliant and knowing and misunderstood and humble one is. <laughs> Out of the left speaker will be the rap songs of self-loathing, the list of all the things one doesn't do well, of all the mistakes one has made today and over an entire lifetime, the doubt, the assertion that everything that one touches turns to crap, that one doesn't do relationships well, that one is in every way a fraud, incapable of selfless love, that one has no talent or insight, and on and on. You may as well have heavy metal music piped in through your headphones while you're trying to get your work done. You have to get things quiet in your head so you can hear your characters and let them guide your story. The best way to get quiet, other than the combination of extensive therapy, Prozac, and a lobotomy, <coughs> is to first of all notice that the station is even on. <laughs> um, I, I knew a woman named Elizabeth who came to the cafe one day when I was working there, um, and she told me a story about voices in her head. <coughs> She was missionary to Nigeria, and she liked that a lot. But then she got transferred to Germany. And she, before she got there, was feeling very anxious about it, and she couldn't put a finger on it. And finally she realized why. Her father was German. I don't know if her mother was. But when she was a child, she had a very bad relationship with her father because she could never do anything right. She wasn't smart enough, she was too tall, she was just criticized by him constantly, and she thought, she expected, even unconsciously, that when she went to Germany, she'd be faced with 30 million of her father. And she finally had to come to the scriptures to see what the Lord said about who she was. And then she said to me the line that stuck with me. She said, you know, a lie is still a lie, even if you've been believing it for 40 years. 
And the truth is still the truth, even if you've just been believing it for two weeks. But that's the challenge. Because the truth of Scripture has to come against all kinds of stuff that we've heard and believed, even from nice little old ladies who, who just are repeating some theories that they've believed or folklore or something. The Word of God has to be radically put above the Word of man and spoken to ourselves in order for us to combat those voices. Here's the $65,000 question then. Is there a cure for covetousness? Is there a cure for the voices, for the schadenfreude? For the incessant chattering and the mental noise of our minds? The Lord has promised that we can abide in him and we can have his peace. And I think we want to go after that. We want to have everything that he won for us by his blood. He spoke in Romans 5.17 of reigning in life. Did he mean that literally? I mean, did he mean it? Or is that just a kind of a flowery, poetic thing to say? You know? He talked in Romans 6 verse 4 about walking in newness of, newness of life. Can we really walk in newness of life? Or is that just a nice thing to say? Is it true just on a mystical, abstract level, but not in any way that's meaningful to you on a day-by-day basis? In Romans 6 verse 6, he said, no longer being slaves of sin. Did he just mean that the guilt is canceled? Or does he mean that we can have some overcoming? of these things that plague us all the time. I'd like to finish by reading one last letter. This is from another inmate. This guy's in Michigan. And it's just about taking the Word of God seriously as a guide for his life. Um... Okay, today was our twice-monthly store day when we go pick up our orders that we put in the week prior. Our order comes in a large, sealed, clear plastic bag. Policy states that we are to check our order before opening the bag in order to determine that we received everything. If we got shorted something but have already opened the bag, it's our loss. I didn't order much this week, and so it was a pretty easy task to check and see that my bag contained the two packs of batteries, oatmeal, and coffee that I had ordered, plus envelopes. Sometime after having opened my and emptied my bag, having at that point returned to my painting, it occurred to me that I had never checked my receipt to see what the damages were. To my amazement, I discovered that I had been charged not for two packs of batteries, but for 22, um, for a grand total of $46 and change. Policy being what it is and the money for our orders being deducted from our account prior to the order having been filled, I could only pray that my return to the store lady would be met with credulity. She, though, was not at the window when I arrived, but rather the guard who assists her on store day pickups. When I explained to him the matter, he asked me if I had opened the bag. I told him I had, to which he responded, well, looks like you're hit, while handing me back my receipt. I kept my cool as he turned away and I said, look, that's over 40 bucks you guys mistakenly took out of my account. I can't afford that kind of an error. Well, I'll ask her, he said, but you know what the policy is. 
He returned a few minutes later and told me to step down to the next window to speak to the store lady. There's a little moral to this story, which is why, beyond just sharing my day with you, I'm telling you this. And it's just this, that honesty is the best policy. You see, about a month ago or so, I had ordered two boxes of oatmeal. When I got back to my unit, I discovered three in my bag, and yet I had only been charged for two. All my cellies told me to count it a blessing and to keep it as repayment for the several times I had been shorted of other things. But I couldn't do that, and so I asked the officer for a pass to go back to the store. Um, but when I explained my reason for needing to go back to the store, he was rather shocked. It was like beyond his comprehension that a criminal would be honest about a thing like that. He wrote the pass, handed it to me, and said, just so that I'll knock off two days from your LOP. That's loss of privileges. So there was an immediate payoff, one though which I wasn't looking for. The bigger payoff came today when the store lady saw who it was that was making this unprovable claim of a $40 overcharge. After all, for all she knew, there could have been 22 bags of batteries in that bag. Uh, the bag had been opened and emptied, so. But when she saw that it was me, the guy who had walked half a mile back to the store to return a $2 box of oatmeal that I hadn't paid for, she said, Mr. Peterson, you know what the store policy is? Yes, ma'am, my fault. I saw the two packs and I didn't notice the 22 charge on the receipt until after I opened the bag. Okay, Mr. Peterson, I'll have this straightened out for you by Friday, she said. Now, this would have never happened in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's wildest opium dreams. He had a little drug problem before he went into <laughs> Had I not been faithful in the little things, as prisoners are never taken at their word about anything here, so as it turned out, a $2 matter of conscience a month ago saved me from a 40-something dollar loss today. God be praised. Not that I shared this story as a way of self-exaltation. I did nothing special, only what was right. Yet God honored it, and so I honor him. And beyond this, my cellies witnessed a good lesson today. When I left here in hope of remedying the matter by talking to the store lady, they were like, yeah, right, good luck. Yet when I returned triumphant, the first thing said by one of them was, wow, that never would have happened if you hadn't taken that box of oatmeal back a while ago. She probably remembered you. Okay, tomorrow we'll get in a little deeper into the abiding mechanics that God has given us.